And so here we go. Um, purity. This is a great sermon to take notes on. Uh, anyone single in church? Second service is kind of our single crowd. Any single people? Drew, you're single. There's a girl somewhere that the Lord is trying to solve that problem in her life. All right. Uh, here we go. If you are single and you don't take notes, then you are sinning. All right. Today we're going to preach on this topic. Uh, God created, also as a caveat, I always say this, if you're a small child and your parents haven't talked to you about these things yet, parents, you might want to talk to them first. I don't think today is going to be too over the top, but I'm a bit desensitized to the conversation. And so here we go. You've been warned. All right. Uh, God creates this idea of purity. In fact, he, God creates sex in and of itself. And in doing so, he gives this gift that has great ability to either make your life better. All great gifts have this caveat. Make your life better or make your life what? Infinitely worse. Infinitely worse. It's, it's kind of like, and what I've talked about before in church is, is this idea of fire. You want fire in your house, specifically if you live you know, in the 1800s before modern technology. And if you control it, and if you have a parameter around it, it has a great ability to bless and even with fire save your life because you don't freeze to death. But if it gets out of control, if gasoline is thrown on it and it spreads, it has the ability to do great, great damage. And so I'm going to answer three questions today and then I'm going to pour out my wisdom on your life. And, and I say this sometimes, and I mean it definitely today. I'm not right about everything, but I'm probably right about this, and if you disagree with me, you're probably wrong, okay? <laughs> I say that because the Bible's inerrant, and uh, I have a vantage point that most of you don't have. I have been in the trenches with these issues for a long time working with people, and so you, you can walk out of here and go, that guy is the biggest dummy that was ever created, and how dare he, and how could he think he would know these things? And I don't really care anymore, but I'm just telling you, I might be wrong, but I'm probably not. And so here we go. Uh, number one question I'm going to answer is the theology of this whole thing of sexuality and purity. And you'll see it on your bulletin. You can follow me along with this logic. Uh, what mistakes do we make viewing sexuality? And this comes from Tim Keller's literature. We've talked about it before in church, but this is a framework that we'll always go to because I think it's so spot on. Tim Keller says, our culture both undervalues, write it down, undervalues and overvalues sex. And so we're going we're gonna to deal with both of those right now. How do we undervalue this idea of sexuality, and then how does that create a dysfunction in our life that carries on, not just in our own life, this is the danger, but in our life, in our kid's life, potentially in our grandkid's life, how do we build this legacy that's built on distrust and destruction regarding intimacy? One of the mistakes we make, we'll start with this one, is we undervalue sex as a culture, and it's not disputable. This, I'm going to prove it to you. That sex is a big deal created by God, and it is just classically undervalued in our culture where we look at it like just this basic human need, like food or like water. And if you're, if you're hungry, then you eat. And if you're thirsty, then you drink. And you can just kind of infer the rest of what I'm getting at when I say that. And the common logic is this, that it is old school to put boundaries on our sexuality. And if not having boundaries in my sexuality is a crime, then it seems like, it seems like a victimist crime that doesn't really hurt anybody. 
And I just want to tell you, you, you are absolutely wrong. And as a side note still, as I'm starting to say things, I'm going, well, maybe kids don't want to hear this first from me, but you had your chance. And so here we go. This is a free therapy session for you, $164, free, okay? Those that undervalue sex end up having terrible sex lives because it's a big deal. Intimacy is created by God. Case to be made. If sex is just physical, if it's just food that you eat or water that you drink, if it's just a mundane part of your life, and if you want to do it, then you do that. And if you want to, you know, have that relationship with 100 people casually, then that's up to you because who, are, who am I to tell you how to live your life? If it's just physical, then the case and point to be made is this. Then why is sexual assault so devastating on the psyche? I mean, you can be an atheist, and we have to agree on this, right? If it's just physical, if it's just something that you do, then why is sexual assault so much more traumatic than even being physically assaulted or being beat up? The statistics are hard-line reality. Women will report physical abuse, and even though they don't report that as much as they should, but they will report physical abuse much more than sexual assault. And when a child is sexually abused, they spend the rest of their life dealing with it because sex is so much more than physical. And when it's outside of the boundaries that God creates, it has this domino effect of pain in our lives that's ongoing. And so it's not just something that we do. Most people's greatest regrets in life tend to be sexual when people come into a counseling session and they say, I need to tell you something that I've never told anyone else, it's usually sexual in nature. Because we undervalue sex, we pay the price. Proverbs, this is our primary text. I love this text. I love the book of Proverbs. I love this idea of wisdom. And so we're going to read this together. Proverbs chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Solomon says this. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well." He says, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, question mark? Should, should you have this type of relationship with everyone around you where it's casual? Verse 17, he says, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. And hear, hear this, hear this statement and underline it because it means something. And rejoice in the wife of your youth. Solomon turns out to be one of the biggest hypocrites that ever let, uh, leaves planet Earth because he doesn't follow his own advice. But he says that when he's young. And so this idea that it is sex is, is just something physical is ridiculous. And the way that last verse translates when he says, the companion of your youth or the wife of your youth, women, you'll love this if you're romantic, especially that woman who cheered in the back to start this thing off, Right? It actually translates something like soulmate. Rejoice in the soulmate of your youth that you've lived this long life with and had these attachments with because marriage is more than physical or sex is more than physical and marriage is about oneness and sexuality intertwines into that reality. Marriage is fundamentally about oneness, oneness in finance, oneness in family, oneness in your future, oneness in your sexuality, and so sex outside of marriage has this negative reality of disrupting the process of oneness in your life. 
And so if you're not married and you're in a relationship, maybe if you feel like it's even a committed relationship, and you maybe even have future plans of being married, and you come into this place, and this, this is church, and uh, I am fully aware that our lives are less than perfect. I am fully aware of what's going on in culture. I don't really have the capacity to ignore it, nor have I lived the perfect life myself before I was married. But I can tell you now, as a guy in my 40s walking in ministry the last 15 years on staff, that this is a massive issue. And so uh, this idea of oneness has been disregarded, and people are coming to church in, in droves. I'm, I, I don't even know how many are in the sanctuary now, and it's not to condemn you. It's just to teach you. And this idea of oneness has been disregarded and minimized because sex is not that big of a deal, and it's been under, undervalued in your life. And you're going, well, I have these future plans, so it's okay. I will just tell you, when you have sex outside of marriage, when you are living together, when you are taking these steps, what you're really saying is, I want some of you, look at me, I've said this several times in church, it shouldn't have a shock value anymore. You're like, well, I'm new. Well, okay, you're exception, all right? When you have sex outside of your marriage, what you're really doing is you're looking at that person that could be your future spouse, and you're saying, I don't want all of you yet. I'm not willing to commit to all of you, I just want oneness with your body. I just want something from you, but I don't want all of you. That's a big problem. And so we undervalue this idea of sexuality. Here's the other thing we do that Keller talks about. He says we overvalue it. Again, you can be an atheist and you have to concede that this is true. People will make incredibly irrational decisions based on an emotional response regarding intimacy. Proverbs 11.22 says this, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. And so the idea is that you have this beautiful ring, my, my beautiful ring, I actually can't, I think I've gained weight, I can't get it off as easy as I used to. My beautiful ring was at a pawn shop that closed down for $25 in 2002. I think it might be real gold, but I don't know. But I'll use it as, as the metaphor of this text because it's definitely just a metaphor. You have this beautiful gold ring, and you're so fixated on this ring, you probably heard this analogy before, that you'll literally do anything for it. It's like, it's like the Lord of the Rings. It's your precious. That's our sexuality. And so we overvalue this idea of sex by saying, man, and, and men are chronic for this, chronic for this, that, that it's such a big deal in their life that they will do anything to get it, and including, including not looking at the true inner beauty of a woman and the character of a woman because they want that thing from her. And so they will even go as far as to spend the rest of their life with someone who externally is beautiful, at least for a season, and internally is a train wreck because they just want this thing from them and not them. And I can promise you this again, I'll say it again, in an undervaluing sex and overvaluing sex, the byproduct in 5, 10, 15 years in the marriage, if it takes that long, more than likely probably two years, if that, is a terrible sex life. But the metaphor is this, that there's this disgusting farm animal but you don't see it, and you'll snuggle up next to it. You'll cuddle in bed with it because there is this gold ring on its snout that you want so badly that you put aside everything else in your life so that you can get it. And then in that sense, you overvalue something that was never meant to have that kind of value in your life. 
Proverbs 31 says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fading, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. A woman who fears the Lord is to be attractive, look at me, throughout the duration of this thing called lifelong marriage. And so to be short-sighted is to pay a greater price in the future. And then the question becomes this. If the ring is all that you're about, we're not talking about a wedding ring, okay? If the ring is all that you're about and you're willing to overlook these things, how much are you willing to pay for it? How about, how about this question for all of us? How much would you pay for a wedding ring? Would anyone in here pay more than two months' salary for it? Did you? Just wondering if you love your wife. That's all I'm asking. Right? Anyone do that? I'm just curious. Did anyone do that? All right, good, good. That's chivalrous. Six months, anybody? You're like, yes, but you don't understand. I don't make any money, okay? <laughs> How about this? Here's a question. Would you mortgage your house for it? Anybody? You're a Midwesterner. I know you wouldn't. Would you mortgage your house for this ring? Would you cash out your retirement for this ring? And so remember the metaphor. It's this idea of there's this adulterous woman in Proverbs, and you're willing to trade in your trophy, uh, your trophy marriage for what you think is your next trophy wife, and you're looking at the ring, and you're saying, I don't care about the godliness traits in this woman that she possesses that I'm currently married to. I'm willing to sell all of that out for something superficial, and I'm willing to pay the greatest price because I see that ring. Would you sacrifice the emotional well-being of your children for it? Would you sacrifice a future legacy for it? Would you sacrifice or put this issue of your life uh, on the altar and worship it as a false idol? Would you leave your marriage for someone else because of a shiny object in the temporary that tells you that you're the greatest thing since sliced bread? If you're willing to have an affair, you cannot answer no. That you'll pay a great price and you will overvalue this thing to the point of utter destruction in your life. So how do we mess this thing up? That's question number one. Question number two is this. How does the slope slip? This is where it gets to the material in this book that's a classic. How does the slope slip? Here's what I mean by that. I've, I said this a while back, and I think it stuck, so I'm going to say it again. Uh, there's a slippery slope. Anyone ever heard that? Well, it's a slippery slope. And when it comes to these issues of intimacy and affairs and, you know, adultery, there are these things in our life that we have to pay attention to, and they don't just happen. And the way that you prevent these things from happening that the literature talks about that we're going to get to is that you don't just need to know the statement, this is, you know, well, it's a slippery slope. This is what you need to know. You need to know how the slope slips in order to not slip on the slope. I literally just made that up in my head. That's like Dr. Seuss worthy. I don't know if I can say that again, so I'm going to move on. You have to know how this process works to be able to disengage from the crazy train. And so how does it work? There's this guy in the Bible. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is King David. Samuel's anointing David as king is just a young guy. And if you know the narrative, you know that he did some very brave things before he was king. And when he's going to anoint the king, he doesn't look like, the king. His brothers look more kingly and manly than him. He's not very tall in stature. He is good looking. Not that you have to be good looking to be a king. 
But Samuel says this about David. He says, man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so David has this character from his youth where he's willing to do anything for the Lord. His, his natural personality in the Lord, he's confident, he's enthusiastic, he's charismatic. He he's really is a woman's dream. He loves poetry. He plays the harp, and he can also slay a lion and a bear. That's the ultimate man. He has all of these things going for him, and he has an incredible catch. But by the time you get to 2 Samuel chapter 5, all of these things are falling by the wayside. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, it says that David took more concubines and wives from Israel. So in Deuteronomy, it says there are three things a king shouldn't do, and one of those three things is you don't do that. But David, over a period of time, gets too big for his britches and starts thinking he can do whatever he wants regardless of what God calls him to do. And so the slope is slipping, and it starts with, and this is, write this down, if you want to know why you fall, it's not by accident. It starts with this desensitization. In his life, in your life, in my life, no, no one's above these moral issues. You know what you're supposed to do. You know how God's called you to live if you're a Christian. And then you start to think to yourself, well, I know there's a standard, but I'm the exception to the rule. And so the desensitization takes place where he starts having more concubines, and then he starts getting relaxed. In his 50s, he's already conquered some of the known world. He is having a lot of military victories. And so instead of following the Lord and God's plan for his life, he starts staying back from the battlefield and letting other people fight his battles for him. And so he's desensitized to what God's called him to do. He's relaxed in the process. And then the third thing is this. The literature says that then you become fixated when the slope starts slipping. And this is how it slips. You become fixated on that thing. And so the thing takes place where he's high on a rooftop, thinking he doesn't have to follow God's plan for his life anymore. And then this young woman, David's in his 50s now. He's not some young guy that's playing the harp. He's in his 50s, and he sees this young woman named Bathsheba. And David's eye is caught. And it goes from a glance to a sinful stare in his life, where he's fixated on this person and seeing her as an object. This lustful fixation came over David while he's in his 50s, you're looking at this young woman, and lust takes over, and here's how it works. When lust takes over, all reality goes out the window. All reality goes out the window. He's now fixated on what's going on in the temporary instead of the eternal. And he goes from fixation to this place of rationalization. We don't know exactly what that looked like for David, but we can assume it looks the same for us and that we're all kind of created equal in that way. When we don't want to feel guilty, what do we do? We rationalize it. Rationalize it in all sorts of ways. We, we say crazy things that are theologically insane, like, well, God's will for me is to be happy, and so if God's will for me is to be happy, then why would he hold this from me? Or I know in general it's wrong, but for me it's not as wrong because, uh, you know, my marriage hasn't been good for years, as if somehow that's not my personal responsibility to take care of, and so I in some way am the exception and not the rule, and so you rationalize it. Maybe he said to himself, well, you know, her husband's been gone on the battlefield. She's probably really lonely. I, we don't know what he said, but we know that he was wrong. And then the last thing plays out in his life, the way the slope slips, is that there's this degeneration in his life. It's one of the greatest falls in the history of mankind. One of the most public falls from grace that you'll ever see is King David. 
2 Samuel says, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, and then the ball starts rolling in the wrong direction so far because you never know where your sin will take you, where he doesn't know what to do, he knows he's going to get caught, he ends up getting her pregnant, and so he has this brilliant idea, he's going to send her husband off to the battlefield, and he has him murdered. The end result in his life is the baby dies that she's pregnant with. There's family dissension and hate that develops. The throne is never the same. And the way that the slope slips is through this process of desensitization, relaxation, fixation, rationalization, and degeneration. And that's how it works now over 25, 3,000 years later with us in our life. There's nothing new under the sun, so says his own son. There's nothing new under the sun. This is how the process works. Question number three before I just pour out the practical is this. What are the disciplines of purity in your life? What are the disciplines of purity in my life? What are those things that David let his guard down on that ended up destroying him internally? And he does go to the Lord and he does repent and God does use him. But man, did he pay a price that it's our hope that we can avoid. There's always a price to sin. So are these certain things that we have to do in our lives. The first one is this, accountability. Question to you. Who are you accountable to? Who are you talking to about these things that could happen in your life, these temptations that you could be facing? Who are you most honest with concerning your spirituality and your faith in Jesus Christ that you're saying, you know, you know me almost better than I know myself, and I'm going to put these safeguards in my life. I'm going to give you the password to this account. I'm going I'm to walk this road for you. I'm not going to be accountable with everyone because it's personal, but I'm going to have someone. Second one is prayer. It's impossible to sin while praying. Third one is memorization. Scripture. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. What does he do? He starts quoting Scripture at Satan. Satan's trying to deceive him, and Jesus is throwing the Old Testament right back at him. Another one that the book talks about is your mind, the key discipline of the mind. That's actually going to get a whole sermon in the future. What you fill your mind with matters. The author says this. I found this very interesting. He says that our, great, our grandparents, and I would even maybe say our great-grandparents at this point because the literature is a little old. He says our grandparents in their entire lifetimes, did not see as much depravity, murder, adultery, and perversion than we see in a single week. That's the detrimental effect of technology on our life, that we're being infiltrated infiltrated with all of these things in our life that are destroying us from the inside out. And so protecting our minds is a discipline of purity in our life. Talk about boundaries. What are the boundaries of purity? We talked about this in men group in men's group a couple of weeks ago. What are the boundaries of purity? Here are a few. Don't bear, men, don't bear your heart to someone that is not your spouse or your wife. Women, this might even be more important for you because of the emotional connectivity you have to people. That your husband is your husband for a reason and a boundary in your life is you don't text someone who's not your husband repeatedly about all of your husband's faults. Husbands, you don't text someone repeatedly or ever 
about all of your wife's faults and then somehow create this emotional bond that's gonna lead to a physical affair or an emotional affair in your life. And I will just say this, in my experience, an affair is an affair. An affair is an affair. And so you have this boundary in your own life. You don't need to flirt with anyone that's not your wife or your husband. You don't need to go to lunch with anybody. I know that's stepping on toes. You don't need to go to lunch with anybody that's not your spouse that's the opposite sex. And an easy way to prevent the ramifications of making a decision like that is bring someone else along. What are the disciplines of purity? Things don't happen by accident, even if they feel like they do. Don't arrogantly tell yourself that you're too spiritual to fall. Last one is he talks about divine awareness, that you have this accountability, not just to the person that you're walking in Christ with, but you have this accountability to God. And he uses this example of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. That when Joseph is challenged to sin sexually, he says this statement. This is what makes him so godly in the Old Testament. He says this. He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? Sin against this vertical relationship. Sin against God himself. That it's not Potiphar's wife that's the real problem. Potiphar's wife is just an example of the real problem that will always manifest in your life. There will always be a new temptation, specifically if God has a calling on your life. And so these are these safeguards that we put in place, and now we get to the practical, and then I close this thing out. Some of these things I've told you, most of them kind of maybe, I'm going to go a little further with it. The first one is this. I started off with this. I want to hit this home because if we don't get this, we miss it bad, especially on a sermon like this because depending on your background, you kind of walk in here, you hear this, and you start to kind of slide back in your seat and feel a bit deflated, and that's the problem, not the answer. Did you hear what I just said? I'm going to say that again. When you do that, you're actually perpetuating a problem and not a solution. Because, because, write this down, pastoral insight via me, living in a perpetual state of condemnation is only going to perpetuate further purity problems. Fact. When you live in condemnation instead of conviction, you're going to run to the thing that makes you temporarily feel better, that's also when you're done using that thing, making you feel worse, and that's the cycle of despair. That you go to that thing for temporary fix that creates the emotional problems and the long-lasting problems spiritually in your life that have become a stronghold in your life. And so don't live in condemnation. Don't live in condemnation. You're not alone. Statistically, If this is not an issue in your life, you are a vast minority. There's probably a reason that you've perpetuated some of these issues in your life. Young girls, if you're going, man, I can't believe this guy's actually saying this stuff. My dad never said this stuff to me. Well, he should have, by the way. And I just want to tell you, probably some of the reason that you've been chasing young men in your life to be kind of pseudo-saviors in your life that are going to somehow fix the emotional state and the crisis of your life is because your dad hasn't stepped up like he's supposed to. And so you've looked for someone to fill the gap, and your insecurity and dad issues are having you chase people that are never going to produce in your life and only bring destruction to your future. There are reasons that we operate the way that we operate, and to live in condemnation is just to perpetuate further problems. Here's the second thing. It starts with a standard. It starts with a standard. 11 o'clock last night, uh, I told my kids now for days, I told them, I said, I am going to stop eating crap. They don't, 
Maybe we shouldn't say crap in church. But I'm going to stop eating stuff that's not good for me, otherwise known as, you know. And uh, my oldest, who's becoming just like this weird health person that I never saw coming, uh, he's been telling me, we, we go. To, it's like the only time I get to see him is at the YMCA because he has a job now and after school. And so we, we work out. And he says, well, how's it going? And I said, I gained a pound last week. And, you know, he's like, man, you just, you got to step it up. And, and then at like 11 o'clock last night, we were all hanging out. That's all we do is we hang out at night and watch TV and, and talk. And I'm about to go to bed because I have to get this stuff ready for you. And, uh, you know, we have church today. So I'm like, I'm out. And while I'm going to bed, I push the toaster down. And I'm talking about health food, and my oldest goes, what are you doing? And I said, I'm making some waffles. <laughs> He's like, it's, a, it's 11 o'clock at night. Quit, put the fork down. What are you? And, you know, he's just super legalistic, and I'm warming up the butter, and I'm putting the, the maple syrup in the microwave because Eggos taste better if they're perfectly crisp with hot butter and, and hot maple syrup. And I'm going to go eat after this, but... But it starts with a standard, right? You, you can't say, this is what I'm striving for, and then doing things that have nothing to do with everything you said you strive to accomplish. You have to have a standard in your life. My oldest said, you're literally talking about what you want to do while not doing it at the exact same time. I said, you're grounded. Give me your phone. <laughs> it starts with a standard. Here's something I don't think I've ever told you. Maybe you're like, yes, you have. You've already said these things, right? I'm like the old dad that just keeps pouring out the old man wisdom now on your life. Here's something I want to tell you. I'm going to get highly practical. These messages always get preached from this vantage point of sin versus holiness, which is obvious why, because that's what it is. But it's not just that. These have implications on your life. And I want to tell you something that has the capacity to change your life, specifically if you're young, but for everyone in this room. If you're older, you already experienced this if you have not lived by God's standards in your life. Bad decisions, write this down. We're going to put it on the screen. I'm going to show you an example of what this looks like. Bad decisions are not just sinful. Hear me on this. Bad decisions are not just sinful. They are sinful, but they're not just sinful. They are time wasters, and time is of the essence. Time is of the essence. Here's what I know about strong women. Strong women who I always have told my own kids, my own boys, I've said, never marry a weak woman. Never marry a weak woman. Strong women get something, and I watch them. I'm like a sociologist, uh, not a professional sociologist, but I, I tag myself as one watching people in the church year after year after year. Strong women are strategists. I'm going to show you a picture of a couple that I've known since they're little. This here is uh, Adam and Emily Zimmerman. I don't know. Anyone know these guys? All right, that's, that's Kelly Brennan's daughter. And so she used to be Emily Brennan. Probably one of the cutest couples ever, so I picked them. Emily was 13, 14, 15. Starts coming to New Life somewhere in there. Meets Adam. Adam, uh, I had him as a little kid, as a youth pastor, really cool kid, had a bowl cut. Had a bowl cut that only a mother could love. He'll be at the next service. I've been waiting to roast him with that joke. He had this beautiful bowl cut that I don't think he got rid of until after high school, it seemed like. 
And uh, that's why he's got that uh, homecoming hat on. He didn't want to take it off. The bowl cut was, was too much. But uh, I watched Adam and Emily as friends. And then as they got started getting closer to getting out of high school, they became more than friends. And uh, they were just this beautiful couple in the church. And they, they made sure to tell me, to tell you, they were anything but perfect. So I'm not trying to tout their story as this is the standard. And they never messed up. But I will tell you this. Bad decisions are not just sinful, they are time wasters. Emily figured out something that I talked to my own daughter about. Emily was a strategist, and Emily had a preferred future. I've talked to her. Emily had a preferred future. She saw what she wanted the future to look like in her life, and so here's what Emily did. She said, you know, Adam, Adam is not perfect, but Adam loves Jesus, He's the guy that serves in the local church. He builds relationships even in youth ministry with adults and wants mentorship. He, he's close to my dad. I can see who he's probably going to end up being. And so I am not going to waste my time from relationship to relationship to relationship because there's this window of time to strike. And she was strategic because she knew that Adam was the wearer of the front backpack at future Disneyland trips with his kids someday. He's the dad. She got it. Emily is a beautiful girl that in high school was very popular. Not that Adam wasn't, right? I, I, I don't know exactly how popular he was. But she was strategic in knowing that going from relationship to relationship to relationship wasn't just sinful, but it was a time waster. And, and the, the reason I bring that up is that time is limited. There's a window, not that God can't do anything, but there's a window when young people who are serving the Lord are looking for a spouse, and if you don't have your stuff together, you are ruining that window in your life, and you're making it much more difficult than it has to be. It is strategic to wait and be pure before the Lord for that person in your life that's going to love you and serve you. It is strategic. Women, hear me say this as we close out on this thing on purity. It is strategic to chase a man rather than dating a boy. Do you know the difference? You're in luck. I wrote it on my iPad. Boys are selfish. Men are selfless. Boys blame others and feel sorry for themselves. Men take personal responsibility. Boys live for the fulfillment of today. Men have a vision for the preferred future. Boys take and manipulate women. Men love and serve their wives. Boys cause pain and destruction. Men build a legacy. My favorite thing about Wednesday is the meal. It just ended. You missed it. It'll be back in the fall. I love people watching at the meal. You meet family after family after family. And here's what I love about the meal. I've talked to you about this before. What I love about the meal is it's where real life meets the church. It's where kids are naughty, running around, food's on the floor, parents' hair is frizzled. And what I love about the meal is it's just we're a family, and that's real life, okay? What I love about the meal is this reality that all of us are going to be at the meal someday, and it's not a question of if you're going to be at the meal and if that's what your life is actually going to look like. You think your life's going to look a certain way? I'm telling you, go to the meal. That's your life. That's what your life will look like. Yes, there will be these moments where it's so romantic, in your marriage, in your future marriage. But I am telling you with certainty, most of life looks like the meal. Anyone married? Amen? Come on now. 
most of life looks like the meal. And the question then becomes that Emily figured out, who do you want to sit at that table with on Wednesday nights? Who do you want to sit at that table with on Wednesday nights? Life becomes fairly mundane and incredibly practical, and you, in your pursuit of purity, will be sitting at the table of somebody, and when you pursue purity, you now have positioned yourself to be at that meal with someone with character. God wants to use this in your life to put the right person in your life. Who do you want to sit at the table with? The benefit of purity, I'm going to close with this. The benefit of purity is this, that when you pursue this thing in your life, you have a vantage point that people around you don't have. When you're in a dating relationship and you should have an end goal of marriage or you should break up, when you are dating someone in your life, if you're a teenager or, you know, hopefully you're not getting, dating too early because that has negative ramifications too, but as you're pursuing that process, you have a vantage point that people around you don't have. In that, you get to see the real person. You get to see the real person that you're actually going to be at the table with. Because when the endorphin release is off the charts, and when you're chasing a, an emotional high that's only going to last 6 to 12 months max, maybe 18, what you're not seeing is the real person. And so you're playing house, or you're acting like you, know, you have this relationship, but really what you have is this physical thing that's going to fizzle out, and then you're going to the next one with this physical thing that's going to fizzle out, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and you don't ever have a chance to bond with someone on an emotional and intellectual level where you can look like a couple like this and say, man, when we're in high school, I don't know exactly what their high school relationship was like. I know they probably weren't perfect, but they got to know the real person. They got to know the real person. All the good, the bad, and the ugly because they were on this trajectory of purity in their life. And if you don't take that trajectory, you're lying to yourself and you're getting an idea of someone who really isn't that person who's going to fizzle out over a period of time. But you pursue the process of building that actual relationship on an emotional level, on an intellectual level, so that you know the character of that person when you're sitting, on the meal, sitting at the meal on Wednesday nights. Does that make sense? Last thing, last thing, your failure is not final. Your failure is not final. Uh, I'm not going to tell you everything about my own life, but I will tell you this. My 18, 19, half of 20-year-old self was a total goofball. And I'm only saying goofball because there's kids. Right? Failure's not final. Praise God. That's the gospel. And so if you walk out of here and you go, man, I've, I've wasted some time. I wish someone would have told me this when I was 15, 16. Here's a wake-up call. You probably went to listen anyway, so let it go. Okay? But you walk in here and you start to feel the weight of this. And your situation is not traditional. It's not, you know, the white picket fence with the, with the husband that's, you know, pursuing purity in his own life and, and loving you like Christ loved the church or, you know, just whatever your situation. I just want to close with this idea when we talk about purity. Failure is not final. The God loves taking brokenness and healing it. God loves taking brokenness and creating a testimony of his goodness. If you haven't treated sex as sacred, then confess it 
and own it, but don't walk in condemnation because it's perpetuating a future problem in your life. It's not going to get better. It's just going to get worse. Condemnation has no place under Christ. All have fallen short of the glory of God. This is not meant to go browbeat everyone and go, why are so many people sinning? The heart of this message now 15 years into ministry for me is this. We can do better and God has more and he wants to use this church and not leave us in the same place. The gospel transforms. Jesus is enough and we can figure this out because Jesus is at the center of it. Failure is not final. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. It's a piece of your testimony. It's not the substance of your faith and your personhood. And if we had open testimony time, I promise you, look at me, I'm closing in prayer. I promise you you're not alone. And I promise you you're not the minority. But I also promise you this, it's not okay, and God wants you to make some changes for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. These are tough issues. I lift up the church to you, God. I just pray for, for people that are single, young people that have had less than perfect stories, older people who have had even more less than perfect stories because they've had time to, to compound these sins in their life. For married couples that maybe have been less than faithful and feeling condemnation for that, I would just pray that no matter what our story is, that you, you would free us Free us to live a life where we can walk in your grace. Where we can actually develop real, authentic relationships with our spouses or even future spouses. That we can be a church that looks different in a lost community because you've saved us and purchased us with your blood. We want to be disciplined in these areas of our life so that we can pour out into the lives of others. And we pray these things in your precious name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.